Welcome to another episode of Top Lines and Tales and our series uh, Characters in Livestock. We are this week, as always, sponsored by Harbro, um, manufacturers and suppliers of quality livestock nutrition. And the pedigree business would not and never really have functioned if it wasn't for the venues at which uh, the animals are sold. And the auction mart is its valuer, meeting place and bank for many breeders. But uh, when it comes to selling the animals, it takes a certain type of character. And uh, with me this week, I have uh, two such characters, both at the top of their selling game. Uh, Raymond Kennedy, auctioneer from United Auctions. Hello, Andy. And James Little from H&H in Carlisle. Yeah, morning. And uh, Raymond, am I right in saying that the British Isles is probably the only place in Europe with a regular auction system? And uh, we certainly don't get the auctions here in, in France. It's the true valuation, isn't it? The auctioneer, to, to, true, true way to value an animal, isn't it? It really is, yes. No, it's a, a tremendous facility there for breeders of all categories of stock to get the true market value and have more than one bid round the ringside. If you've got a ringside of buyers there, there's nothing going to determine the true value of the stock and nothing can get an atmosphere going like it. Sure, sure. And James, because it's it's slightly different for pedigrees, isn't it? Does a pedigree auctioneer need to have an understanding of the value of every beast? I mean, how do you train for that? I suppose it's a people business, isn't it, really? Yeah, I mean, um, each beast does carry a certain commercial value, which um, would, would put a, a bottom in the market, certainly, um, in terms of, Appreciating the value of pedigree cattle, um, beauty is often in the eye of the beholder, and um, yeah, there's a lot more travelling to be done with a pedigree animal certainly than than uh, commercial auctioneering. So it is uh, it is different in that respect. And, and you and you need to know your buyers and your sellers, really, don't you? It's as I said, it's it's about the people, isn't it? Absolutely. Sometimes you, you're better known the buyers than you are the beast, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> so that's uh, that's, that, fair. that's the key to it, I would say, yeah. Fair yeah. comment, eh? Fair comment, I'm sure. And if we can look back into the history, both you guys will say that you're far too young to recall these uh, the great names, but you'll certainly have heard of these guys living legends through and folklore, really, if uh, if you've not actually been under the influence of some of them yourself at some time or other so if we, if we go back the, the auction marts generally started to emerge around about the turn of the 20th century and in scotland names such as Lorian simington at lanark and john swan at st boswell's and john fraser at perth they'd all become household names within the, the industry but specifically within the the pedigree industry and if uh, if we start with the last of that group there mcdonald fraser of course what's now United Auctions. Originally, the mark would be the bottom of Mill Street. I don't even know if Mill Street's still there anymore. And that later moved to Caledonian Road in 1875, which, of course, is by the old Waverley Hotel, again, all being leveled now. And uh, that then would be near the station. Of course, many marks were near the station. Initially, it was called MacDonald Cullum. And we know that John Fraser joined the company in 1867 and became a partner in 1871, just, just changing its name would have started out as a small sale of shorthorn bulls in 1865, grew into the more famous Perth bull sales that we all know about. And uh, by 1891, there were 162 shorthorn bulls and 200 Angus at that sale held in the spring. And from then, the numbers grew until the two breed sales had to be split because there were so many of them into two separate weeks. And 
by the 60s, nearly a thousand Angus bulls in one sale and uh, record prices are some of that still stand to this day and spectacular history around that old mart, isn't there, Raymond? And I mean, I'm not sure if you ever got to the old mart, probably not, but I mean, you'll know the history and, and it's an incredible atmosphere, wasn't it? Well, that's it. No, unfortunately, I was too young to get to the, the old mart here, but certainly when you you see the historical documentation of it there, it's quite unbelievable, and especially in the the mid mid nineteen hundreds there when this, they would re- these breeds would really be at their peak with the overseas interest there. Mm. You know, to think you know, all the way back, you know, to the likes of fifty nine there when they were starting to have bulls past that twenty thousand guineas mark there with the likes of Elevate Eastfield and you know, just for for the whole atmosphere to be back like that back then, it's mm. quite remarkable. It would be certainly something to see these days. Certainly would be in the cattle, of course, slightly different. We'll maybe go on to that. And, of course, the two brothers, Harry and Lovett Fraser, sons of, of John Fraser, um, were not only great auctioneers but also um, excellent businessmen, and the firm spread its wings across, across Scotland. And it would be 1951 when Harry's son, Rowley Fraser, left the army and joined the firm, initially only being allowed to sell tools, I think he told me, and then later a few pigs and sheep. And uh, it would be five years before he got to sell bulls, and then that was because his father had a car accident, so uh, he stepped in at last minute. Selling bulls isn't a job that you start with, Raymond, isn't it? It's, it's, uh, you've got to build up to that one. Oh, definitely. Oh, no, there, there's a lot of water crosses underneath the bridge before you get to the bull stage anyway. No, I'd like to oh, myself remember the first day selling yet, and it was selling plants and shrubs at the, <laughs> the flower sale there. There's certainly a, a lot's changed from then, and then managing to move on to the the cast cows before moving on to store sheep and breeding cattle, then eventually getting on to pedigree stock. Mm-hmm. We'll get on to maybe your own careers in both of you in a second, but that's uh, exactly how it is. I said you need to work your way up to that. And names at the, uh, amongst the United Auctions, apart from Rowley, of course, would be Eddie Hutchinson and Jack Young, and they both joined in the mid sixties. And between the three of those, they'd pound for pound probably sold some of the most expensive stock in the world. And um, Rowley himself admits it was easy to sell the top balls. He said it was the the tail enders that's harder to shift. And James, that'd be a true statement, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, as as I touched on earlier, I think uh, everything finds its value, but uh, certainly it's a lot easier to to find a value when you have a couple of willing bidders. Um, the tail end bulls, especially, it must have been the same back then, but now there's uh, a more steady demand for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think now we see cow numbers uh, coming back slightly, which uh, does affect that. And also, when things are a good trade, the current climate, things are a good trade. The commercial men are having a, a good go. They tend to uh, they tend to treat themselves a bit better. They um, sure. will certainly try and buy a better a better animal when when they've got a bit of money in the pocket. So yeah, that, that, I think that's been true through the ages, Andy. To be honest, yeah, yeah, I know. Going back to the bull sales, there was a local for a local to me. A, Ray Godwin that we've mentioned before on this podcast, I think, who used to go up there and he'd buy a whole load of bulls from the bottom end. Or if he hadn't got them sold, I think Rowley would pick up the phone and say, right, I've got a dozen bulls you know, left over at the end of the sale. And Ray would say, just, just, just stick them on a float and send them down. So handy people like that probably do make a difference at the bottom end. Yeah, they certainly do. We could do with one or two of them now, I would think, yeah. <laughs> and I had the privilege of speaking to Rowley a few years back. Uh, I interviewed him about some Aberdeen Angus stuff, and uh, I've got a few snippets of wisdom from him. Um, Rowley, you joined the Mart in 1951, is that right? I joined as the office boy. The office boy, okay. I was one of the oldest office boys they'd ever had. <laughs> and 58 was Elevator Eastfield, 
Mm -hmm. That was the first bull that made over 20,000 guineas. And that probably gave me more satisfaction than anything I've ever sold since. Because it was, you know, it was the first time. Mm -hmm. And I can remember, remember selling it well. Really, going back to the bull sales, a lot of those animals looked very small, but some of them would only really be calves, wouldn't they? It was quite deceiving. The they average age in 1963, when talk of a rose bull was sold, the Duchess of the average age was 11 months. There were about 600 bulls, as far as I remember, and the average age was 11 months. They were too small, but as you say, they were over-fat, suckled calves. Okay, and that's thanks to the archives of uh, the great Rowley Fraser that we do have uh, that recording. And, and of the others above, uh, Jack Young was a, a superstar, really, and such a, a great character. And uh, I know my friend Ken Fletcher from the Scottish Farmers got a few... Uh, stories about him uh, as, as as I have myself. Yeah, well, I, I think I first met him at the, what would be the Perth bull sales at that time. And, you know, I was just a youngster and, he, you know, he, he had a great admiration for the press. He knew that they could, uh, they could help the market and, you know, give a, a reasonable report on the, what was happening at the sales. So he always made an effort to look after me. And that involved, uh, at some points, after he'd finished in the ring, usually, been taken into a, a wee back room of the bar that was attached to the market. He had a hatch through into the main bar, and it was usually filled by some of the stalwarts of the day, and Jack would always order two large gins, half and half, and plenty of gin. You know, that was his kind of uh, yeah. standard drink. Um, and then I suppose the other time I met him, I travelled down with him to go to the the Royal Welsh Show, and you know he was absolutely fantastic company all the way down there. During the show, he knew everybody. He was for a young guy like me, it was a brilliant introduction. You got to meet people that you would normally wouldn't, you know, get even get close to. So, it, it was a fantastic kind of mentor to young people like myself and and a lot of young stock. Quite a rare thing that an auctioneer he knew what a beast looked like. Yeah. You know, a good one. And, and he was known, of course, as Jack in the Box for the way he jumped about when he was in the rostrum, and a, a well-named, certainly well-named for his for his antics up there. Well, I, you know, he was certainly very lively in the ring, and I think that was one of the, the kind of things that people liked about him. He was always good to watch. So, you know, when it's one of the arts of being a, a great auctioneer is to hold everybody's attention, and Jack certainly did that. Yeah. You know, he was as much theatrical as, as it was. I think Jack was one of those exponents of a bull's pizzle as a a gavel. That was like an old school thing where they, they took a, a bull's pizzle, as we would know it, and they um, had it cured, and it turned into a very, very long-lived gavel for them, for all the sales they had. Um, I don't know whether it was part of the kind of almost that kind of Masonic thing amongst some of the older guys, but it certainly was a, a, a feature on some for some auctioneers. <laughs> Mentioned um, about Jack somehow managing to organise a, a group of sheep breeders all to go down to France and buy some blue domain sheep on a small farm in the middle of middle of nowhere. Did you did you make that trip, Fletch? I I didn't make that trip, but I heard plenty of it. Um, some of the stories were kind of legendary, and, I, and I'm guessing that the best of them stayed on tour, as they should do. <laughs> but I, th I think there was some really, um, 
I'm not going to say dubious characters, but I'm going to say lively characters who, who were on that trip. So, and they certainly talked very highly of Jack because he could organise literally the old piss up in the brewery better than anybody else. Yeah. And I remember my father coming back. I didn't go. My father went and Avril Evans went. And my father was sitting in front of Avril, not knowing who Avril was. And because uh, Jack was was bidding father against Avril. And, and he was convinced. Father was convinced that Jack was taking him two bids every time. And he couldn't understand until he looked around and there's Avril sitting grinning at him. And I think they had, a, they had a bit of a battle on the first couple of years. And then after that, they shared the spoils. But I think they both came in with half a dozen deer sheep apiece anyway, thanks to Jack. You know, I think it was uh, one of these things that probably wouldn't happen now. Yeah. I don't. I don't think uh, some of the current auctioneering brigade would, you know, consider such a thing as to take a boatload of farmers over to France and then organise a sale. It just was. It's kind of. It's. It's still a bit surreal thinking about it even now. Sums him up, doesn't it? Sums sums up the man. He didn't. Uh, mm. He didn't mind taking a chance on it. And. Uh... And uh, and then, of course, uh, still sticking with UA, along came David Leggett as an office boy in 1975. And uh, I think old Harry was still chairman at that time at the age of 87. And David told me himself he was considering a career as a vet, but decided to stay on and would learn his trade from uh, the likes of Ian Thompson as well, of course, as, as Rowley and Jack. And it was 1984 before he sold a bull in Perth, but... Uh, does recall selling pedigree pigs at the King's Hall in Belfast as being his first introduction to the job. And I'd imagine a bit of Cyril Miller involved in that. There'd be some jiggery-pokery about that little trade that would teach him to. And Raymond, I suppose you should pick up on this one, really. David would be at the helm maybe when you joined UA. Tell us a bit more about uh, about that man, please. Yes, no, David was at the helm there. And you know, it was a, a tremendous opportunity to have David as a mentor there. You know, a gentleman with such a knowledge of livestock and pedigrees and as well as a, a genuine passion for the, the industry as a whole and for the, the breeding and pedigrees behind the stock. You know, but one thing that really set him apart from him was you know, his knowledge of the people as well, not only the, the breeders, the stocksmen, everyone behind it there, and just that genuine enthusiasm for the whole industry. It was quite refreshing and you know, brilliant to, to be mentored by, by such a man. We certainly... The industry was lucky that he never went down the career path of becoming a vet anyway. <laughs> Indeed, and as you said, a man that have time for everybody and always would have a, a stop and speak. And so as we said earlier on, that it is a people game that you're in. And we've been talking about David Leggett uh, and Fletch, but uh, you, you'd know him fairly well. I think you guys all went fishing together, didn't you? Yes, uh, we've been fishing on several occasions. Um, uh, he's, uh, he's certainly a much more gentleman fisher than we are, uh, or my team are. Um, but he always he always brought a bit of bon homie to the the riverside when we fished on the Tay, and I can tell you a funny wee story about going up to Noidart to uh, to a show up in Arisig, and we were persuaded to go to Noidart to spend the night, which necessitated a boat journey from Malig. And when we got on the boat, the boatman told us that a guy called David Leggett was staying in one of the lodges. And did we know him? And we said, did we know him? Oh. So we we went round to where he was staying and there was nobody there. They were away doing some of their hill walk and stuff. And uh, then about half an hour later, after we'd cracked open his two-litre bottle of gin, they came round the corner and thought their house had been burgled because all the windows were open and there was singing and dancing coming from it. <laughs> and he's, <clears throat> David's wife took one look in and said, oh, it's only you, Fletch. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, 
that was a that was a bit of a funny moment. But <clears throat> what I can say is that you know uh, Jack would be a bit of a mentor to David Leggett. But in my opinion, David would be a real classy auctioneer who managed to have that touch of being able to, you know, treat commoners and kings exactly the same way. And he had that it's a great talent uh, for an auctioneer to have. And he had it in spades. I, I would I would rate him as being the prince of auctioneers in when he was in his heyday. There we go. Well, that's some that's some recommendation. Certainly, as a man that a lot of people looked up to. So, uh, cheers, Fletch, for those uh, for those wise words on that one. But there has been quite a number of other auctioneers there, of course, at UA, including yourself, Raymond, and uh, and there still is, of course. No, well, certainly one I would mention, David Brown. That's been really brought up all his days through the, the old first basket right through. He's been a, a tremendous advocate there in the, the pedigree side, selling at the bull sales for us. All his days there, yep. you know, David's been, you know, been a, a tremendous man to learn from as well as having learned from David Leggett there. And if we move away from UA across Lanarkshire to Lorien Symington, started in 1862, so a similar time with Mr. Laurie making it into a weekly market a few years later. And again, near the railway station, the mart would become synonymous with the sale of Clydesdale horses, of course, in that area that would have got it going. And the mart was also... It would have had a strong association with the Elliott family, but it would be Ian Clark who would be responsible for selling the Blackies back the way, and I think for four decades until he retired, uh, Ian Clark uh, in 1975 would be would be Mr. Blackie. And then um, the Texels would come in, of course, around about that time, and uh, with such a fantastic atmosphere in the Old Mart, again, you guys may have been in the Old Mart in, in Lanark, and it would move to Muir Glen in 2005, and of course, along with its weekly sales, it's still holds the main sale for Texels and Blackies. And uh, these days, Brian Ross would be the main man, and what a great auctioneer he is. So you guys had, any, had, had dealings with Brian? Ah, yes. I certainly know Brian more so through the, the Blackie world there and from out and about at shows. But, you know, what a, a tremendous engineer and a great great knowledge, especially of the, the Texels. Mm. He's got a great passion for them there with his the secretary for a number of years and say for the Scottish club, but, you know, a great knowledge of the the Blackie and Texel world. Mm-hmm. Certainly, I bred Texels for a while, and certainly in the Texel world, again, knew everybody, every sheep, and every breeding, and every sheep. And uh, you very often wouldn't need the catalogue to tell you what to, what the sheep were. And that's again what we're getting back earlier on to saying isn't about knowing knowing your trade and knowing your beasts, uh, isn't it, James? And of course, you get uh, you get Texel sales down there. We'll come on to you in a second. You get Texel sales down there, which would be rival to to Lanark, but Lanark would still draw the best the best of them. Yes, um, yeah, I think Lanark um, is synonymous with the uh, the pedigree breed, isn't it? Um, the, the pedigree Texel breed. I think um, you know the the, the uh, breeders' lambs do tend to come out of there, and uh, I think that's a testament to uh, to Brian's ability. And uh, yeah, he's, he's fabulous to watch in the boxes, isn't he? You know, he's animated and um, and really uh, yeah sells with a lot of passion, and um, I think that. That carries you a long way. So. I watch him on uh, TV these days, based in France in the summer. So uh, I normally have the TV running and listening to him there while I'm getting about in the garden there. And uh, yes, it is. It's a pleasure to pleasure to listen to him. You're dead right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I, I mentioned John Swan. I think John Swan might predate the Fraser's Mark by a little bit. And I recently read a, a short book on their history by uh, Andrew Humphreys. Thank you, uh, Andrew. And uh, in it, it states about the the Falkirk Tryst, which is a a type of country fair, and in 1864, 
John and his sons, James and Tom, were already in action. So a little bit earlier, as I said, than the others. And, and this is the quote from a man called, calling himself the Druid, who used to travel these fairs and then, and then write about them, some sort of, uh, not quite sure what a character he was, but uh, he said, The swans, father and sons, are flitting about, not in white swans down, but in white linen coats with notebook in hand. One son makes a sheep and the other cattle their speciality. And they had nigh on 10,000 sheep on sale yesterday, and many thousands of pounds worth of cattle will have passed through their books before sundown. Doesn't that conjure up a, a fantastic image of the old fairs going back the way? And, and these, because uh, that'll be in the times of the drovers, I suppose, when thousands of head of stock would be heading south down to feed the populated cities of, of London and Birmingham and down the way before the railways came and changed everything. But the drovers going back the way, and the, you, you guys will have seen photographs of them, must have been an incredible day when these drovers would just travel the lands and then pull together their, their few thousand animals and then drive them on down the road and then park up and, uh, and, and trust somebody like uh, John Swan to sell them. There would certainly be some sight there, you know, in the numbers involved. It was said that they would change, trade something close on 100,000 sheep at uh, John Swan's in a year, which is uh, still up there with uh, with numbers of today, I'm sure. And because uh, the railways came and changed things and the Swans settled into Newton St. Boswell's down there in the borders, I think in back in 1871, still making it one of the oldest markets in the country. And it was said that... Uh, Tom sold cattle from the middle of the ring rather than the rostrum. That, that'd be interesting, James, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a concept I've never really thought, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. they must have been somewhat uh, quieter than some of the continental breeds of today. Certainly. You said that, not me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And on the subject of John Swan, a name that springs to mind uh, from again from a slightly older generation would be that of another Jack, uh, Jack Clark, who was uh, with the firm for forty-eight years and. Uh, Jack would do the comment, the commentary at the Royal Smithfield show and at the Highland, a job I've got now actually, and, and uh, was uh, never short of something to say, uh, Jack, that's for sure, not just as an auctioneer, but as a raconteur and character. And of course, he'd run the Suffolk Rings at Kelso Top Sale as well. And uh, you guys ever, ever had any dealings with Jack? Yeah, um, came across Jack at um, a few of the uh, auctioneering um, institute meetings and things in the hour, our. Uh, Annual Congress, and yeah, as you as you quite rightly say, is a fantastic character. Uh-huh. Uh, never never short of anything to say, and and uh, yeah, as as the as the night moved on, I think great fun to be around. Yes, <laughs> certainly would when the drink flowed. You're right, and. As an aside, of course, H and H then bought John Swan. I think was that be 2016, James, somewhere around there. Yeah, somewhere around there. Yeah, yeah. And we'll go. We'll go on to. Uh, of course, mention a few other marts in Scotland, which we should do hundreds of them you know, throughout Scotland alone at one time. And more recently, there's A and M in in, um, in Aberdeen, of course, and the Orkney marts, and James Craig and the Wallets down in the southwest, and UA's mart at Oban. Uh, um, Donald Morrison would be a name attached to to the, that latter, and uh, he was a great seller and a kenner of pedigree Highlanders, wasn't he? he knew the breed pretty well, uh, Raymond. Well, he was indeed. Donald did. Having a strong connection with the West Coast, being from used originally himself, you know, again he had a great passion and he understood the breeders and knew knew the breeders well there and the cattle and the the difference it makes, you know, when you've got someone with that passion and understanding of the the, the breeds there, it, it really makes a job. 
Certainly would, and as you say, there's a slightly different type of breed over there, and a different type of person, that's for sure, that uh, not everybody could communicate with, and maybe being one of them uh, helped him out with that uh, with that trait. And moving south of the border, you come to what's maybe recognised as the, the biggest centre for pedigree livestock in the UK, and not just based on its geography, um, H&H, uh, of course, where you are, James, and now headed up by Scott Donaldson, who I think at the time would have been the youngest auctioneer to sell bulls at Perth, age 21, so uh, probably younger than than, than Rowley anyway, and, and, and yourself, Raymond, and uh, James, you've been one of the main auctioneers there now, um, so we'll get your take on the place, really, and, and, uh, and maybe in a second, but uh, first I'd like to pay tribute to uh, the great David Tomlinson, of course, and one of the, I think, one of the greatest auctioneers to sell pedigree stock for me and to me in the and a genius, wasn't he? Again, a man who knew every beast and uh, and everyone. Yeah, he certainly did. Um, I was very, very lucky to uh, start as a, a junior under David Tomlinson. And uh, as you say, just uh, a majestic man, really. Yeah, um, I think in terms of uh, his box work, he was second to none. Um, and as you quite rightly say, I think um, he did, it was a lifetime's dedication, I think, really. Um would he have been there, man and boy, uh, uh, David, or what do you know? Where, where is yeah, his origin? Yes, yeah, yeah. He was. Um, he started in Botchergate Mart um, at, straight out of school uh, as an office junior, and uh, worked himself up to become the uh, managing director of the company in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, when he left that post, um, he was installed as a pedigree auctioneer again. Yeah, so he, uh, yeah. I, I mean, as I say, it was a lifetime dedication of seen many a time we've been dragged to the the south reaches of uh, of wales on a sunday and things to, to view cattle and yeah nothing was too much for him he was uh yeah i couldn't speak highly enough of him to be honest so. and, and a sad loss to the industry when we lost him just a year or two ago raymond of course you'd have had dealings with him as well would you yes uh, absolute tremendous man seen the box and what a humble gentleman as well just always time for everyone and you no, know, great to catch up and and see with see him there when when you were down at sales. He was a a true master to watch. And the mart going back to was originally in the town. My father would go up and buy a lot of cattle in in Carlisle. He remembers it being on two levels, and that's before my day and yours, obviously. And uh, until it moved to Rose Hill in the in the mid seventies, and. Um, and of course, the beginnings, the humble beginnings, I suppose, or the busy beginnings of H and H would be would be a man called uh, Jim Hislop. Uh, would you would you remember back to him and his stories of him, James? Yes, um, he actually moved uh, from H and H in his later days to uh, the local market close to me at Wickton, and yeah, an, an absolute uh, phenomenal auctioneer and somebody that was held in such high regard in in. Not only the local area, but nationally. Yeah. I think um, we, we've uh, spoke about Jack and David Tomlinson. Um, and, yeah, the, Jimmy was another one. That, uh, absolutely legendary. So you're dead, you're dead right, he was. And, yes, a man I remember. And, of course, he had a, what I said, the, the main man at H&H for, for oh, a decade or more. Yes, yes, he was. And, and not only pedigree-wise, but... Um, I think fat cattle wise, he, he was one of the one of the top uh, the top men at his game. Yeah, so. yeah. Without setting any bias, H and H have grown extensively. Really, as I mentioned, taking over John Swan, and I think you guys got nine or ten marts now, and a host of other in-house businesses, including obviously real estate and printing and all sorts of things, and a pedigree department as well. But uh, the the mart is still the heart, isn't it, James? Absolutely, yeah. I think um, 
everything's grown out, out of the foundation of the, the market. Obviously, yeah, the, the companies that are now associated with uh, H&H Group, uh, as you quite rightly said, the printers, the um, the real estate guys, the insurance guys, it, it's all it's all been based and built off the back of uh, a very strong um, livestock market. And a list of auctioneers who've built up that reputation before you obviously included uh, David Dickinson. And I remember um, David again being a great uh, uh, advocate and remember him and I getting very drunk on a, on a trip to the Paris show once <laughs> and uh, and uh, enjoyed a dram and, and, and a crack. And then David and, of course, Heather Pritchard over the years, at the, on the, the Heather on the pedigree side, as well as, uh, as Scott uh, Scotty that's in there now. And I'll let you guys share a couple of stories about Scotty without getting yourselves fired. <laughs> yeah. Scott, um, yeah, I mean, Scott has been with the company over 10 years now. Um, I don't... Uh, yeah, he's a he's a well. I should probably say this is a great boss to work for. He's very easy going, and, and is is uh, like in the past his predecessors is a great advocate of youth. Mm-hmm. And um, I think Harrison and Heverington has been built on that principle. And and um, also UA too. It's great to see um, such massive companies with with uh, we've mentioned superstars, superstar auctioneers, but. I think the underlying thing about those guys was they were given a chance and they've been brought up on, on giving others a chance. And that um, that's put myself and Raymond in very good stead. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, no, definitely. Soon be your turn. You guys turn to hand over the baton or certainly start bringing the youngsters in there. But we'll go into your careers in, the, in a second or two. You're not as old as me, I know that. And um, if we uh, just move, I just want to mention Kelso. Kelso, um, um I suppose Kelso Ram sales and, and indeed the Bilth Ram sales, and that must be a an auctioneer's nightmare selling there. I guess up to two dozen rings all going at once, and just about every pedigree auctioneer in the country all at work, all all back to back, and buyers flitting between one ring to another. And you never know where you've got a buyer there, or he's run off somewhere else. And fantastic atmosphere, isn't it? And I guess both of you guys sell sell at both those sales. Yes, I've actually only ever been down to Kelso once. They had opportunity to sell, but. It always clashes here. We've got our, our largest dealer of blackface waver lambs uh, the following day in Domali, so I'm usually sent away to, to look after the things for that there. And so I've only had the opportunity to be down there once, but it was certainly an experience I'll never forget there. <laughs> it's a noisy experience, isn't it, James? It is, certainly, yes, yeah. Um, I, I'm afraid I'm with Raymond here. Um, I haven't actually auctioneered at, at Kelso. Um, I remember... In my younger days, I was sent as a clerk up there, and it was something you, it, it has to be seen to be, be believed, hasn't it? Really, yeah. it's um, it is one of those great events um, that stood the test of time, and something that we certainly wouldn't want to lose in in the future. Yeah, long may Kelso Ram sales and and uh, the likes continue. I would yeah. say, yeah. Yeah, brilliant, and yeah, it is. It's said some fantastic atmosphere. And on the subject of Kelso, as we're moving over the border into. Northumberland, I want to mention Michael Walton and Michael Warwickson mentioned as a great stalwart of the Suffolk and Blue Leicesters and of course been selling at Kelso all these years and his son Andrew now running the business and now his grandson Jack, another youngster coming into the trade, taking a role at Hexham and Northern Marts and joining Drew Patrick and Rob Addison down. I think Rob's one of your, your ex H&H guys, isn't he, uh, James? Yeah, another one of my many bosses, Andy, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, yeah, Robert... Back in the, when I first started, he was one of the senior auctioneers, um, and uh, as uh, yeah, there was he left the business as uh, and 
when Scott joined the business, so I was uh, fortunate and lucky enough to work with both of them. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And while we're talking about Hexham, I must mention uh, Trevor Simpson and Brian Rogerson, and who've both completed 50 years as auctioneers this year at Hexham Mart, both in the same year, which is quite an achievement to anybody to work that long, but with the same company, but uh, let alone two of them at the same time, two absolute uh, legends of the trade. And the size of their Reston would have been a strong market in its day, and under Sandy Veach and then his brother Archie. Uh, and, and his son Hugh, who I worked with, was involved with at Smithfield, and that was a, a massive suckled calf market over there back in the day, as would Carlisle have been as well. And, but uh, I think my father would, would, took me up there when I was very young, and, and Robinson's at the Snape House would uh, pretty much fill that mark with Cheryl uh, cross calves back in the 70s, I suppose, five or 600 of their own, and you know, over a thousand suckled calves at, at the time. And those suckled calf markets maybe aren't quite so, so prominent these days, but... Uh, they, they again would be in a fantastic institution, wouldn't they, at a certain time of the year? Yes, no, there's certainly something to be there. It's, uh, you know, it's a thing we still get a lot of, even in the west there, the circle calves sales there in the back end. It's a, an exciting time. It's a noisy time too, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it is that there, definitely. <laughs> I remember the father would bring 40 or 50 of them back down home and they'd be in, in the fold yard nearest the house there and a bloody noise for about two days. You had to move out because you couldn't, you couldn't hear a thing. They'd keep on and <laughs> Okay, and then going further south and majoring on the pedigree side of the livestock auctioneers, I want to go to Banbury, of course, no longer there anymore, and, and the great Jim Watson. Again, guys that you probably, a chap you probably, guys probably won't know, but I mean, for him, it wasn't just a pedigree auctioneer. It was a man could sell pretty much anything to anyone, including a, a thousand fat cattle a week back there in, in Banbury. And they would have some of the early Charolais cattle sales there. I used to dress up cattle for for, for those, and uh, a man held in great esteem. And uh, and they also had a good fat stock show there as well, which uh, I got involved in. And it was the top market in, in England probably at, at its day. And uh, he, of course, went on to, to be mentor for Paul Gentry, who more recently went on to run livestock markets at Newark and Darlington for a while and other roles within the business. And, uh, and <laughs> moving um, further south, well, that time a name John Thornborough that everybody will remember from from my age group anyway, starting out as a freelance auctioneer selling mainly dairy cows, and uh, not quite sure how, but John somehow landed the job of selling limousine cattle when the limousines first came in, and and a man he was for a long time that the main sort of limousine sales and a few other ones, and another man with an incredible memory. And, Quietly spoken, but never to be underestimated at all. You'd you'd think he'd passed you by, but he man just never never seemed to miss anything. And it's a common trait amongst uh, these these top auctioneers, isn't it? It's it's the it's the the, the, the quiet guy that sees everything and, and sees everyone. No, that's certainly a, a trait there that everyone within the industry there sets in good stead. And say we're all all working in the same industry there, to, so it's great to, to have have everyone equal in that level. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And while we're down in that dairy area there, Chelford seems the most unlikely place to have a pedigree auction centre right in the heart of the Cheshire countryside. And it's thanks very much to Tom Ashton when he first bought the Belgian Blues in and it became home for the Belgian Blues for a number of years. And under uh, Wright Marshall, uh, the two auctioneers I remember were Richard Eads and uh, Clive Norbury were the men there. And uh, I don't think uh, they had any more idea about what a Belgian blue was than, than we did back then. And they only sold dairy cows. <laughs> the, the cattle were certainly very different back then to they are they are now. And they'd get a few Texel sales and early Beltex sales down there as well until it closed a, a few years ago. James, did you get down to the, the Beltex sales down there? Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, both both blue, um, blue sales when they were 
in the heyday and the um, Beltex sales as well. I think um, when the Blues were going well, I think they had quite a good showcalf sale attached to uh, attached to it as well. I think uh, we actually took some cattle to sell to Chelford once over um, before. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a market we're fairly familiar with, and as you say, it's one it, it doesn't. Uh, it certainly didn't have the look of a pedigree market, but uh, the, the sales did thrive there. So. I remember it being a bloody cold place when I took Belgium Blues there, but that's probably all markets, to be fair, in the winter, isn't it? Yes, it is. And uh, <laughs> a trip down into the Midlands finds the Uffold brothers, who need to mention one of the mainstays, of course, behind McCartney's thriving business down there. And David had an interest in, in Texel Sheep himself, but it would be John Uffold who would be the main man behind getting the new markets built at Ludlow and Worcester and again selling over a thousand fat cattle a week and, and still do I believe and uh, um, some man John just absolutely dedicated to his trade there maybe not the, the, the most amiable to talk to everybody but uh, ooh, he, he would uh, he's a man could sell cattle fat cattle faster than anybody I've ever seen he <laughs> sell two, two fat cattle a minute the man could it was unbelievable Clive Rhodes would come in to sell the pedigree stock and of course he's now one of the top men there and uh, they do a lot of pedigree sales down there in Worcester probably second only to, to Carlisle, I would say, in the country now, of the amount of pedigree, English pedigree sales they get there, uh, James. Yes, yeah. Again, Clive, the fact that we've, we've all these guys, is uh, they're all characters, aren't they? And uh, different characters nonetheless, but I, I think um, the stock areas are fortunate to have them, and, and uh, Worcester is, yeah, it's a busy place. I think they have Beltex, Texels, um, Limousins, yeah, yeah the, the, um, it's great to have places like that um, to service different areas of the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they have the Pedigree Ryland sale there because Clive sold me a few of those in the last year or two and Clive was actually recently on this programme having had a history in the Longhorn breed and now he's semi-retired there and uh, there are a few uh, youngsters selling Pedigree stock on, under him and including a female one, Jenny Leighton Mills who I think now runs their, their Brecon market. Have either of you guys got any young lady auctioneers on your books or in, in, the, in, in the company? We have no female auctioneers at the moment, but we've got a few, quite a few female field staff out in the road there, canvassing stock and heavily involved in, in the, in the, on the road for us now. So they're certainly, you know, more becoming, coming into the industry there, which is great to see. James? Again, same as Raymond, we, we don't actually have a female auctioneer on our books at the moment, but uh, certainly um, Libby Bell, who, she came through H and H as a fields person. Uh, she now applies her trade as an auctioneer at uh, Barnard Castle and Pateley Bridge. So, um, although we don't have any on the books, that the, there is certainly people who have uh, come through Borderway Market and um, and gone on to to forge successful um, auctioneering. Their careers, yeah. There you go. Any ladies listening out there? There is still a career within the within the the, the livestock auctioneering business, and exciting business it is. It, it's maybe not uh, every lady's cup of tea. It's a bit of a man's world there, but you love the likes of uh, of Raymond and James as, as mentors there. Uh, uh, get your applications in. That might be putting them off with us as mentors. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a load of other marts we could mention, and it's hard to cover everybody, but uh, if we're just moving down through England, there's the Marsh Barton Mart in Exeter, I think it's been there 100 years, and home to the Devon pedigree breed. And, of course, getting into Wales, uh, Clee Tompkinson and Francis would run any number of markets down there in the south as well as uh, selling the having the Welsh textile sale, I think, at Landovery these days, and, of course, at Bill's Ram sales. And uh, and the largest life, John Arian Davis, will give you a mention, John, who's down there in the southwest corner, although I'm not quite uh, sure what he's up to, but a man a man about the textiles uh, 
you guys will know, I'm sure. Yes, yeah, yeah. I've come across John on a, uh, quite a few times, as you say, a larger than life character. Uh-huh. And um, Raymond, the Mart in Stirling, of course, is now where the bull sales are, but it's a busy place to haul you around. But the bull sales are still a, a special event, obviously, that you're involved in. Now, when did you get started started in the business, uh, Raymond? Tell us a bit about your, your background. Yeah, well, you see, well, originally I started uh, in Stirling just down the road there from uh, Caledonian Marts, and I was based between there and Oban Marts, and it was up at Oban that I would start selling the pedigree Highlanders originally uh, before moving up to United Auctions there, which will be coming up for eight years ago now. Uh, so it's been a, a tremendous opportunity there. Was the first week that I started with United Auctions was my first time down to Kelso and get an opportunity to sell down there. It's been based really on the West Coast, doing a lot of the sales in Oban, Dalmali, as well as going out to Isle, Tyree and Uist, and now based in the pedigree department. So it's a, a great variation within the job there. And and the Dalmali sale would be equally as atmospheric, I guess, as the as the Sterling Bull sales, and it's one of the main oh, sales for blackies and flying prices and, and a lot of speculation, isn't it? It, it really is. It, it, it's a day that's got to be witnessed to be believed there. You know, for a, such a small market with such a great atmosphere there, it's quite unbelievable to, to, to see the amount of people that can get into one ringside at once. It's just... It's something to be seen anyway, and, some... oh, and it's, it's it's not known as the Whiskey Olympics for nothing there either. <laughs> <laughs> and some of the variation amongst those, those sheep, there'll be one in there, 300 quid, the next one's 200,000. It's a, it's a hell of a cross-section, something for everybody at that sale, isn't it? There is, there is, and uh, I've even seen sometimes been in the same pen, <laughs> you know, sheep with that variation, but as I say, it's the atmosphere that makes it, it's one of the main opportunities for the, the hill farmers as well as your top breeders to acquire you know those wacky genetics and you know it's just got a magical atmosphere about it that sale it really does and an old mart as well Darmali I think it'll go back a long way like most of these have been sold oh, and yes. in, but this one's still still the original mart no it's still the original market there and ring there is say it's just the I say apart from the the, the penage area itself there it's all the original building so no, it, it certainly adds to the character of the place. Bourbon, James, on to you, yourself there, as mentioned, due to its location, H&H pretty much covers the, the whole countries. And uh, uh, yourself, you've bred um, Beltex, of course, Beltex sheep, is that right? And uh, how do you find to, time to in, uh, to do a busy job like that as well as uh, as well as selling pedigree stock? Yeah, um, coming from a, a farming background and, and having um, a family farm at home, Breeding livestock's always been uh, part of uh, my genetic makeup, I guess. So um, I don't mind saying when I was offered the job in Carlisle, um, I think I was 16, straight out of school. Uh, it was never my ambition to be an auctioneer. I wanted to to uh, go home and farm, really. So uh, just with the, the size of the farm and, and the climate at the time, uh, it was decided that I would be better getting a job. So I, uh, I took... David up on his offer after completing a, a work placement through school when I was fourteen. Right. Uh, he offered me a job after that, okay. so that's that's how I got the that's how I got the job offer. And uh, to be honest, it's uh, probably the best decision I've made in my life. So mm-hmm. that <laughs> it worked out pretty well. But as I say, I like on on a, a weekend and a night, I like to to come home and still do a bit of stock work. 
And yeah. Um, what numbers of Beltex? Yeah, what numbers of Beltex sheep do you run? Yeah, we'll have uh, fifty pedigree pedigree ewes. Uh, we do a bit of VT work. Um, we'll have a couple of hundred, uh, two, 200, 250 commercial ewes, and then 30, 40 cows at home. So uh, I'm look, lucky. Uh, Dad's still very active on the farm, um, and a lot of the, the work when I'm not here, he uh, he does it. So that's, uh, yeah, we're looking that way. And would you be primarily known, more known for an auctioneer in the pedigree world in the sheep side of it, in the, the Beltex and the Texels there, or would you consider yourself uh, across the board? Yeah, I, I mean, I think. Um, Working with David Tomlinson, um, obviously the the limers and breeds massive in in Carlisle. Um, I started, I think uh, we've mentioned him earlier, David Dickinson. He he gave me the chance to sell uh, Beltex and Texels in the early days, and yeah, I'll be probably around about twenty twenty. I think I was when I first started selling uh, the the Belgian blues or the British blues as they're, they're known now. Um. And that was really my first excursion into uh, pedigree selling uh, of cattle, and now, yeah, we um, the, the limousin breed is is something that we've had at home for for a number of years. Something I, I have a, a deep laying passion for, and um, yeah, selling them is is a great pleasure of mine, and yeah, a, a great passion as well. So the H and H would have the the main sale for, of course, limousins and uh, and Belgian blues these days, I guess. Yes, yes. When I first started selling limers and bulls, I, I was selling away at a bull. I think I got him to 9,000 guineas. And David Tomlinson, as, as much as a, a mentor and, and uh, a humble gentleman he was, he stood behind me and I'm sure he called me a chicken. So I, I decided, I took it upon myself to uh, to move this bull to uh, 10,000 guineas myself. Um and the guy stopped dead. <laughs> so, so, so I, uh, which, which was at about uh, in my early twenties, it was a, a wonderful feeling. I can tell you. Um, so I, I quickly said, I knocked my mic off. I quickly, what do I do now? Reverse, he says, reverse. You know, and that was that was just the nature of the guy. Although he was at the top of his game, he, he loved a, a joke and, and a laugh, and, and uh, he, even that was, you know, he was getting to the twilight of his auctioneering career there, but. Uh, <laughs> on his day, even then, he, he was full of mischief and uh, mischief in the box, and yeah, it, it was great to be around. So. <laughs> uh, great story that uh, you can get caught with your pants down sometimes, Raymond, can't you? In that in that trade day, uh, just gotta gotta be careful. Just got to be careful there. See, it's it's amazing. You know, the one thing, unlike the the commercial stock there, you know, you always know. Where something's going to be, you know, within reason there, price-wise. But when it comes to the pedigree, it all depends who your two people are on the day. Mm-hmm. Of you know. Can I? It's a question I want to ask probably to the both of you can answer this. How how is since the advent of uh, COVID or, or the apocalypse of COVID or whatever we we call it? Obviously, the the world has changed, and a lot more of these biddings now gone online. I've bought sheep online, pedigree sheep online, unseen before now. How does that how does that alter your your attitude in the box when you're selling pedigree? Sometimes the bidding's a bit slower through the through the internet, isn't it? Does that and the people aren't there, you can't see them in the eye. Does that make a difference to to the way the sales are going now? You know, I, I think it certainly certainly last year there was a, a lot of activity, you know, online bidding there. You know, it, especially we noticed it more so on the female side than the bulls okay. uh, there in February past. You know, with things opening up again, it was noticeable. There was very little 
activity online. Folk were wanting to be there to see the bulls themselves, whereas in the, the female side of things, they'll take a chance. You're buying a, buying a pedigree you know, in the females, aren't you, more, more than the animal, maybe? That That's it there, that's it. Uh, but certainly it does, it, it, it's amazing that when you see someone in the eye, you see the way they bid, how they bid, you know, you can gauge how keen they are, you know, whereas when it's online, you don't know if they're just there for a one-hit one wonder as such. Mm -hmm. Just there, just to tap a button, and of course you can't see, or generally won't be able to see who's bidding, there'll just be a number, won't they? So you, you, you'll you not know that you've got to maybe Jim Goldie on the other end of the computer just to, to press pressing the button, or whether, as you said, it's just somebody out there just having a laugh. So uh, um, the same with you, uh, James. I think probably Carlisle would do a bit, quite a bit more on, on the on the um, internet side. Certainly most of your sales now do seem to be uh, available online. Yeah, um, I think I think it's uh, COVID brought us uh, a few challenges, but also brought opportunities mm -hmm. as well. Um, the 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 online the online part of it has has certainly grown. Um, it was something we were looking at prior to COVID, but it it really forced our hand when when that came along to to get involved with online bidding. Um, yeah, I, I, I would echo uh, Raymond's point. Really, I think we've also seen um, a massive swerve towards uh, females um i think they sell they sell fantastically well bulls generally if they are bought online they've been viewed prior to the sale yeah. i would say yeah uh, somebody somebody's yeah. seen them uh, buy, buying a bull is a large investment um and not uh, not often done um but it does. But, it I mean, does still, unless you need a second look at the bull. Once you have had a look at the bull, and very often, of course, a lot of these bulls are seen on video or seen by somebody yeah. else. But mm -hmm. once you have seen a bull and you know your price, it's a lot easier to sit at home and do this and then go back to your work rather than taking a day out to go to go to a mart, isn't it? It, it is. I, I think as an auctioneer, um, one one of the great skills in auctioneering is cajoling another bid or you know having a bit of a bit of banter with with a bidder. You know, if you're starting to slow down and, yeah. and drawing that. Extra that extra I've, and I've been I've been that bio when Tom yeah. has been selling me things yeah. yes <laughs> yeah yeah that, that, that's one of the great skills and if you can if you can stretch somebody's budget or get them to blow it rather <laughs> and get a few extra thousand then then that, that's far easier done in a live sale ring situation yeah. than somebody that's sat at home um on on the laptop or tablet or whatever mm -hmm. the, the the other thing that it allows them to do is uh which which is a pet hate of mine is um control the bidding increments True. which um as, as an auctioneer you like to be in control of the bidding and and you, you kind of have bidding patterns Absolutely. to get to where you need to be yeah. Yeah. so yeah. that that control that out so it is it is challenging and at the start we probably did have uh, a few issues but uh, yeah it, it's something that is now commonplace in markets and it's something that uh, we have to, to grow with, with in the industry. So. And are we seeing fat cattle going down the same route? I know in the USA nobody goes to a mart anymore, everything's sold online. Do we, are we seeing the fat market, fat trade going down that same same route? I think in terms of fat and and also um, well, Raymond will be able to tell you better but the place, uh, the Scottish market certainly a wane cattle which would tend to uh, lend itself more to the online bidding uh, platform i think america america's different to over here i mean our star cattle sales a man can bring 10 cattle and sell them mm -hmm. in 10 lots mm -hmm. 11 if he tries hard enough <laughs> <laughs> and um yeah over there the, the cattle are far more uniform aren't they you know yeah. you, you're selling big you're selling big numbers that they're all uh an r-grade angus bullock mm -hmm. um 
so to speak, they're, they're all pawned, you know, the weight, the 120 kilos, and you, you can be sure of what you're buying. But yeah, over here, there's that. We, we work with so many different breeds, and there's so many different grades and weights of animals that really it, uh, I think we're quite a way off of doing that certainly so doing away with it with yeah. with the rooming buyer yeah of course so and, yes yeah and um how are we seeing the market now the market picking up back since covid i suppose you guys will be both at the sharp end of seeing where the you know the prices are going lamb's been on fire beef's been on fire at the moment is it is that tail leveling out a little bit now or are we going to still are we going to start seeing a you know a, a carry on seeing a boom in the agricultural industry no, well, certainly at, at the moment, there things have levelled out really. In the cattle side, we're just waiting on spring coming properly. There's signs of it today, but just waiting on, on grass, etc. They're coming. But certainly the constant that's been in, especially through February there, was quite remarkable to see, you know, both commercially and pedigree-wise there. Uh, it's, it was great to see the confidence right throughout the industry. Fat lambs at two hundred pound. I never thought my grandfather would have turned in his grave if he'd, he'd want to buy a flock for two hundred pound. <laughs> <laughs> no, see, see the, the the hog market. See, it, it's levelled off, eased off now. But no, when you see the the cull values, it's quite quite remarkable. It's been unbelievable to see when you see cull yows up up over the length of two hundred pound, two hundred and fifty pound here yesterday. It's, um, you know, one day we would have been seeing that in the pedigree. Right? Never say, mind some, in the some of them aren't worth that pedigree, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's strange times and change times, isn't it? Well, I appreciate you you two chaps taking the time out of your busy days to, to chat to us. I hope we've done homage to a little bit of the older auctioneers and, and at the same time got a bit of an understanding on how the, the auction business works here in the UK to our American listeners and... and uh, and how you guys, uh, both of them, are at the heart of that that very uh, that very section, uh, Raymond. Very, thanks very much for your time. No, thank you very much for having me on. It's been thoroughly enjoyable. Uh, and and James, likewise, uh, you're a busy man. They better get back to lambing a few Beltex. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's one of the more challenging jobs. Yeah. No, uh, thanks for having me, Andy. Okay. Uh, enjoyed it greatly. Thank you. Great to speak to you, fellas. Thanks a lot. See you. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for listening to this week's Top Lines and Tales podcast, again kindly sponsored by Harbro, suppliers and manufacturers of quality livestock nutrition and nutritional advice, and of course other agricultural inputs as well. And during these uncertain times of spiralling input costs and volatile uh, markets, uh, why not have a word with Harbro and discuss your feeding plans either directly with them or with your local representative who, of course, can be found on harbro.co.uk's webpage or on social media, such as Facebook and others. And you can, of course, find Top Lines and Tales on social media, on on Facebook, uh, Twitter and various other places. And on Facebook you will find some photographs, hopefully, to back up this and other episodes.